Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Greg Koch here, and this is the Chewing the Gristle podcast. We have extemporaneous conversations with musical friends from all walks of life, genres, nostril circumferences, things of this nature. Brought to you by our good friends at Wildwood Guitars in beautiful Louisville, Colorado, and Fishman Transducers of beautiful Andover, Massachusetts. Can you dig it? As I like to say, the power of Pivar compels us. This installment of Chewing the Gristle, a juicy and robust chat with my good buddy Jeff Pivar. Tune in. Actually, you're already here again. Doggone it. Uh, I'm very excited today. I got my buddy Jeff Pivar, magnificent guitar player, great human being, journeyman, cat. I mean, he's all of the above. And we're just going to shoot the breeze. He's at his home in beautiful Oregon. And uh, first of all, Jeff, how the heck are you? What's going on, Daddy O? You know, it's obviously a very unique time in this human crazy you know world um admittedly i am one of these guys who tends to look at the or tr- does my best to look at the optimistic side of things yes of course and i as lo- as well as it's uh something to be reckoned with i also look at it as an opportunity so in the last few months i've started doing yoga every day yes I've gotten out to my garden and spending a pretty much every day for a little piece of time in my garden, which is so grounding, (laughs) Uh, no pun intended. I like what you did there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, at a certain point, this, as far as the opportunity goes, we get a chance to reassess what's really important at this point in time. Exactly. So, you know, it's possible that you can kind of let go of some of this past stuff, or at least for the foreseeable future of the way that we constructed our lives right and it's an opportunity to grasp a new reality even if it is temporary right and hopefully some of these things will be temporary but between uh i've gone deep into understanding some technology about live streaming which mm-hmm. has been a joy and you know I, i'm one of these guys who I, i'm not a manual reader i i and, and thank god for the internet because there's people out there uh, who are doing YouTubes, uh, displaying uh, technology and ways that you could set up your gear. And so right now, uh, I've got two iPhones and an iPad Pro as a three-camera shoot. Nice. There's a, there's a company called Xtempo who makes a USB foot controller. And I'm able to control changing cameras with my feet while we're playing. Uh, using an app called OBS. Right. I know about OBS, but I've, yeah. I've been wanting to do a foot channel switching thing for a long time. We haven't been figured out. So this is gold information. Paul Brown, you're listening. We got gold information. I've been in Dorsey uh, with them for years. They originally made their product to work with uh, DAWs. So in other words, I could, if I'm... Um, working by myself in my studio and I have an isolation booth away from my computer, I can put this thing on the floor and I can control 
you know, record, stop, rewind, blah, 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 with my feet. I don't have to get up every time I do a take. Perfect, perfect. So the thing about this unit is that it is, uh, especially the, the brand new one, it, it comes with a USB piece that you put into your computer and it has the diagram of the foot controller and you can assign whatever you want to each foot pedal. There's awesome. eight pedals and there's three assignments per pedal. Single click, double click, and, and one other thing that I haven't even had to use. So with 16 prompts, I'm able to bring in text, turn on and off, payment possibilities, uh, you know, anything I want using this OBS, which is my first foray into, into that kind of thing. So in a nutshell, I've been kind of getting way into this, and, yes. and we've done two live streams so far. We put the live streams out so far for free for people who can't afford and then we ask for donations and sure. it's, it's been very lucrative in fact you know people Excellent. are are there to support when they can right so between that and then thank god i've got a studio at home and i'm very busy with numerous clients in fact one wonderful client hired me hired me to do an entire record and paid me in advance oh awesome yeah so thank god you know i know it's not the norm for a lot of working musicians. Um, I learned years ago when I uh, did my very first tour and I felt like I had made it. And right. then the band that I was playing with had replaced me. And after seven weeks of playing huge places, I came back to no work. Sure. And so that's when I realized, okay, I need to diversify. I need to do studio work. I need to be a performer. I need to be a composer, film scoring you know, sessions, blah, blah, blah. So um, what is this? Maybe 30 years later, um, right. I'm very active in, in all these different things. And uh, it's that has really been immeasurably helpful uh, to not put all my irons in one fire. If right. I'm a gigging musician right now, I'm, you know, maybe I shouldn't swear, but it's <laughs> not a good time. <laughs> well, I, I was going to say the last time I saw you in person is when you were playing with David Crosby, and that yes. was just a, a magnificent uh -huh. show. I mean, that was, I mean, the tunes are so great, and it's and it's not, you know, not to cast aspersions on other, you know, kind of classic rock era musicians, but Crosby is, I mean, he sounds so good. I mean, there's there's a bit of nostalgia to the show. Yeah. But it's like it, it's always going forward. So there's, you know, there's new interpretations of the old stuff. I mean, the harmonies are spot on. He's Great. cool that, you know, gives you a, a long leash to do your thing, which is magnificent from, you know, Thank either you. just playing really cool parts. But when it, when called upon to do leads, they're magnificent. He's got some young cats in the band. He's got his son in the band. Yep. So I just I thought the show was 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 Thank fantastic. You. So that's that's got to be a bit of a bummer that that's not going on. But as you said, I mean, you've learned your lesson long ago that, you know, whether it was playing with Crosby or Ricky Lee Jones or Ray Charles or the myriad of other jazz is dead, all these different people. It's true. You know, you're out, you're playing these big places. The, the, the loot is great. And then all of a sudden you're back home. Now, what do I got to do? Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you uh, for for that. It was a real honor to have you there, and of course, 
it was uh, a delight and made me nervous that you were there. But um, oh. I, I did have have your beautiful red guitar on stage, if you remember. And you and, know, you were so cool about it. <laughs> At one point, you just you just kind of held it aloft, and I was totally. like, "My man!" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, that guitar is an amazing piece of work, and uh, I am so uh, excited for you. Uh, you know, just all about your career, uh, what you're doing. You're quite an inspiration to so many of us. Oh, and, thank you. That's very to, nice. To be pals and get a chance to play together at NAM has been a total joy. But to have that guitar on stage that night, yeah, I had to kind of raise the chalice to the god. <laughs> the goblet of rock was hoisted aloft. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, and and I'm very very fortunate uh, that I've had this uh, connection with Crosby for many many years. It started off doing trio with Graham and David and I, which was really an amazing opportunity. And then uh, David meeting his son, James Raymond, which is a long story, but we put this band CPR together and we did a number of records with that. And then we kind of took a hiatus of working together. Um, you know, there is something to be said about every combination that you work with, you learn from. And sometimes relationships kind of, you know, come in and they, take a break and sometimes they come back together. So after not working together for, I don't know, 15 or maybe 20 years, we've been working together the last three or four years and it's been an absolute joy. And in fact, after the second gig, Crosby pulls me aside and he goes, you know what, Jeff, we tried for years to find someone to fill your shoes and there just ain't nobody. Yeah. It's really nice. You know, he doesn't throw out stuff too easily. And, uh, we have a really nice friendship and, you know, to be of service and to um, help him with his vision, because this guy's been working a long time. Right. And he, he always assembles the people around him that can really deliver what it is he's looking for. And we've always had a great um, synergy. So there's a lot of things on the, on the net. If people want to go check some stuff out, um, the videos with Crosby or Ray Charles or whatever, you know, Yes, there's some awesome video footage <laughs> of the thieves in action. And there's some there's some videos of us playing together at NAM, which I saw actually a couple of days ago, which is burning. Yeah, there's some good yeah. stuff. It's always a pleasure to have you. And we'll do some stuff in the future. We've been talking about, you know, having you do some uh, some stuff with the trio with us. That would be I enjoy awesome. that. I would enjoy that very much. Well, what one of the... <sighs> You know, the things I love about your playing so much is that you're, uh, well, first, there's there's so much, but the, like, when I got that Jazz is Dead record, I mean, it's just magnificent. I mean, it's one thing to go live and play great live and all that kind of stuff, but in the studio, yeah, you know, to come up with the parts, the tones, and solos that are perfect, I mean, Mm. If, I would recommend to anybody to get that right. as his dead record. It is just a feast of good. Stuff. I mean, you know, and I'm not, a, I'm not the hugest dead fan in the world. I mean, I, you know, as you know, T Lavitz and I were buddies and, oh. and I, I know when T put that, you know, was part of putting the initial uh, aggregation of jazz is dead. I was like, you're doing what? What well, we're yeah, doing yeah. these dead tunes. And, and all of a sudden I was like, well, there's those tunes are cool now. <laughs> I mean, that's not the. T I mean, I know there's huge dead fans, and there are yeah. stuff that there is stuff that I've listened to that I've really, really enjoyed. I don't want to be one of these, you know. Yeah, I'm not being a you know snob no, or whatever, I, but I and I was with you. I, I, you know, I didn't really, you know, that that wasn't my thing per se. But and I didn't mean to interrupt. But no, but that I went right. 
mean. I'm, I'm glad you came to my rescue, to be honest. <laughs> well, you know, it's like uh, um, there's all different styles of music out there. And for guys like you and I, probably listening to Steely Dan and listening to, you know, records that really featured great guitar playing. Of course, the Allman Brothers, which was a right. huge influence probably on you and I. You know, the Fillmore East record was guitar lessons for me for a year. I had Absolutely. to sit you know, ingest every lick on that record, you know, so, um, but, but the, the legacy of the dead is what it is. And in fact, it was very interesting when our bass player, Alfonso Johnson from weather report right. was like, this body of music is incredible. And I was like, well, if Alfonso Johnson from weather report is saying that, yeah, this might be pretty cool. You know? Right. <laughs> And there are some very interesting compositions, but the things that we did with them were to take the initial vibe and totally turn it around. So like a sugar magnolia, blossoms blooming, turned into right. playing it on slide like little feet. And, you know, we took a lot of artistic license while trying to honor the melodies but bringing it somewhere else. And as you mentioned, you listen to the Grateful Jazz record, which is the fourth record that uh, Jazz is Dead ever did. And I produced it and arranged it with T and, you know, and T isn't around anymore. So I miss him greatly. Right. And interestingly, um, I was going through a big box of old tax receipts and at, I got, you know, cause I needed to just throw stuff out. You know, you're supposed to only keep it for a few years and I right. get to the bottom and there was a whole treasure trove of videos I had taken on the Jazz is Dead tours, on the crowd, making the CPR records. I had lost this stuff, or I thought I lost it. I couldn't find it for over a decade. And right now, as we speak, I'm converting it, transferring it to digital. And there is stuff with Rod Morgenstein and T. Lavitz and Alfonso Johnson and I as well as the other band, which was Kenny Gradney from Little Feet, Billy Cobham, T. Lavitz, and I. I have numerous gigs, and I will be posting some stuff. Excellent. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really, I was really honored to get asked to do that gig. And it, as you probably know, when you're playing with musicians who challenge you, you play over your head. Right. You know, when you're playing with guys who aren't really dare I say as good, or let's just say someone that doesn't kind of get you going, right. then you can kind of stay a little complacent. And when I got a call to be in a band with Rod Morgenstein, T. Lavitz, Alfonso Johnson, I was like, what? Where, right. where do I audition? And, and the guy goes, no, 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 you got the gig if you want it. I'm like, oh my God. So I got very proactive into arranging the material to make sure it was something I could actually play. Because I know T. Lavitz and Rod are used to working with Steve Morris. Right. I like that. I mean, in my dreams, I don't play like that. And I have such wow. great respect for that. That, that Dixie Dreg stuff is, I mean, that is Epic. that's highly arranged technically. I mean, you know, it's sit with the metronome for God knows how long type of music. Yeah, totally. So anyway, long story short, I have been so honored that the, that that, is part of my legacy. And like I said, when I was on stage with those guys, it's time to go for it. Right. You know, it's time to play over your head. And I was just listening to these tapes and it's like, I didn't know I could play like that. I mean, it, I really, you know, they really kicked my butt to, to really 
uh, pushing the boundaries. And uh, it's kind of a lesson, uh, you know, that I learned from <laughs> watching those tapes. And that is important to musicians who are aspiring musicians. You want to surround yourself with really accomplished musicians whenever you can. Not to say that playing with everyone and playing with musicians who might not be as stellar as, you know, uh, Alfonso Johnson isn't important too, because you learn from everything that you do, but the diversification and pushing yourself into uncomfortable territory. I did say, see this one fantastic uh, video with a, a famous drummer and, and his, his, this comment that he made that really stuck with me was, we practice so we can be comfortable when we're uncomfortable. <laughs> That's a good point. Isn't that great? <laughs> so, well, know. let me ask you this. So you grew up in Connecticut, right? I attempted to. <laughs> well, you're, you, you, uh, you grew physically. <laughs> so how did you end up breaking into uh, these larger nationally and internationally known ensembles? Did you move to L.A. at some point? Did you get picked up when you were in... And then how did it all how did it all pan out? Well, you know, it's been said before, it's all who you know, or it's all if you are willing to create opportunities for yourself. So it's a combination, there's a combination of things. The very first big tour I ever got uh, was with Ricky Lee Jones in 1983. And a childhood friend named Michael Ruff, who is a keyboard player, singer, songwriter, child prodigy. And uh, he, he, his main instrument is keyboards and, and he writes songs. He's written songs for numerous artists, including uh, On the Nick of Time, he wrote Cry on My Shoulder for Bonnie Raitt. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Michael is just, he's one of my dearest, dearest friends. And he, moved to Woodstock and then moved to LA and he was Ricky Lee Jones's band leader. And he called me up one day and he said, listen, if you want to fly yourself out, I'll get you an audition and you can stay, stay on my couch, you know? So I worked on the stuff and, uh, I actually didn't do very well at the audition itself. I was really nervous. And they had another guy who was kind of in there doing some rehearsals. And Michael said, listen, stay in town, stay on my couch, keep working on the tunes. And about four days later, he goes, you're coming in today. It's not an audition. It's a rehearsal. Uh-huh. And I rehearsed. And then he, one thing led to another. And he, he basically got me the gig. He wanted his, his homeboy on the gig. And, it, and I, I feel like I was the right guy for the job. It just, I was so green. Sure, I that, got you. So to answer your question, that one was because of who I knew and because hopefully I had the goods and I've seen, you know, some videos of that first tour and I, I think I did fine, you know, and, and, you know, it's an, an ensemble is an ensemble. It's all these pieces. It's the synergy, you know, of how people get along and the vibe. And, you know, um, when I was rehearsing, it was just with the band and all of a sudden the door opens and Ricky walks in and we're playing this song called Weasel and the White Boys Cool from the first Ricky Lee Jones record. It's got this like, and she puts on her guitar and she starts walking towards me. And I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> walking towards me closer. And she's like, 
right here. And then she put her head right next to me and I'm freaking out inside, but I'm going, you want this gig? Just relax. Right. Be there, be there for her. You know what I mean? And right. so there, there, I, I often use this analogy, the, angel and the devil on the shoulder from animal house right. where you the different voices <laughs> yeah. talking to right. you <laughs> and the, the devil's going, oh, get the hell out of there. She's a weirdo or whatever. <laughs> you, know, you can't deal with this intimacy, you know, and the angel's going, just chill, Jeff. This is your gig, man. Just be there for her, support her, you know? Right. And uh, I often confront those voices when I'm feeling doubtful about my abilities and you have the opportunity to listen to whatever voices you have. Right. It's not like those voices aren't important or part of your psyche, but it there's something to be said about, you know, being your own best friend instead of your own worst enemy. Right. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and uh, there's there's a great Ray Charles story, but it's a little lengthy, so maybe we should Oh, that's all right. Bring it. Bring on the Ray Charles story. All right. Well, I'm very proud of this story. It's a, it's a wonderful story. So it is, uh, I, of course, as a mu young mu working musician, I was often gigging on weekends. And I was living in Hartford, Connecticut at the time. And Ray Charles was playing in New Haven on, on a Friday night, and I had it off. And I remember seeing it at the time, you know, the paper, Ray Charles is playing. I got to go to this. I've never seen Ray Charles. And I'm really not that familiar with his work. I mean, I was an Allman Brothers freak and, you know, I was sure. a young, you know, guy uh, listening to the music on the radio and all that stuff. I wasn't that familiar with him, but sure. I knew he was an icon and I, this was really important for me to go witness. The day of the gig, I get a phone call from a friend of mine who said, Ray Charles's guitar player quit and our friend Morris Pleasure is going Morris. down yes. is going down to fill in on guitar. Now Morris is one of these you know Morris yeah. and he's a genius. He plays bass, he plays keyboards, he's you know just he plays trumpet. He's you know one of those guys. So Morris afterwards did tell me he tried to call me but I maybe he didn't have my number but anyway I decided after getting this phone call from this young man saying his guitar, Ray Charles's guitar player has left. You should go down and get that gig. So armed with a Rolling Stone magazine that had recently come out with a review of the Ricky Lee Jones record that I played on that had a little quote saying, the graceful pluck and weave of Jeff Peabar's guitar on the song, yeah. it must be love, whatever. I figured, all right, this is my resume, you know? And I took the Rolling Stone magazine with me and I went down early, knowing that bands show up early to sound check and set up. So I get to the theater about, I don't know, two hours before or three hours before showtime. I'm just waiting around in the front. All of a sudden, a bus pulls up and the band starts walking out. And I go up to the first guy and I said, could you introduce me to your band leader? I, I hear you guys might be looking for a guitar player. And he introduced me to a man named Clifford Solomon, beautiful man, fantastic guy. And I explained to him that I was interested in the job. He said, well, we, we got someone tonight, but yeah, man, come on in. Why don't you uh, watch from side stage? We have two shows tonight. And, uh, you know, because we got to set up and do, you know, our sound check and stuff. And I'll talk to you in between shows. So there I am, the side of the stage watching. 
Ray Charles band with my friend Morris, who I didn't really know that well then. And I could see he's nervous and hands are shaking and the charts fall on the floor. And I, I could, you know, I just felt for him. Now I'm watching the show and I'm thinking to myself, there's all these charts and I don't sight read. I, I've never been a sight reader. It just hasn't been my thing. I'm, I'm very fast. If I can hear it, I can play it. Sure. Uh, thankfully, the Beatles weren't sight readers either. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm having the angel and the devil moment while I'm watching. And the devil's going, dude, you can't do this gig. You don't sight read. And the angel's going, you're just assuming that the sight reading is just very intensive. You're a great right. guitar player, Jeff. Why would you quit? Why would you talk yourself out of this gig until you see that you can't do it? Or maybe right. you can't. I mean, you can read chord charts and right. you can kind of get through things. So why don't you just chill out? And so the first show ends and the guy comes, uh, Clifford Solomon comes over and goes, so what do you think? And I said, oh, I'd love to do this gig. So he goes, do you have a tape? I go, no, but I'll be right back. I get in my car. I drive from New Haven, Connecticut to Hartford, which is about 45 miles. Now, in the interim, a very dear man in my life, his name is Doug Cupper. Doug gave me, I, I did my very first recording sessions with Doug Cupper in Hartford. He had a studio on the bottom floor of his father's advertising business. And Doug not only did all the jingles for the advertising business, but he also had a side business doing session work for other people. And I was brought into that studio and I had worked there for a number of years. And I had told Doug that I thought that maybe it was important for me to move to Los Angeles to become rich and famous or whatever, you know, to further my career. And Doug had said to me, come into the studio. Let's do a demo tape for you. You need to take something with you. So in the interim of, uh, you know, because I'm going back and forth with, with this timeline here. Anyway, long story short, I ended up moving to, um, to Massachusetts to play with an artist named James Montgomery. Didn't move to L.A. But Doug used that demo tape for prospective clients who would come into the studio and everyone who heard the demo tape, oh yeah, I got to record here. You know, this sounds great. So Doug ended up giving me the keys to his studio. Ah. I would go in at night after gigs, three o'clock in the morning working, or if I had nights off, I was constantly in his little eight track studio creating tapes. Well, when Clifford Solomon asked me if I had a tape, I said, no, but I'll be right back. I got in the car. I drove 45 miles, 90 miles an hour to this studio where I had some mixes of very gospel, bluesy guitar playing. I dubbed off three songs on a cassette. I drove 90 miles an hour to get back in time, hopefully, because they were doing their second show. Right. Turn the corner. They're getting on the bus. Clifford, here's my tape. Gave him the tape, got the audition the next day, got the gig. Ah. <laughs> so, you know, you just never know how it's going to happen. But if I listened to the devil, you know, you can't do it. You right. Can't read. You know, when I did the audition, there were chord charts. There was one solo that was written out. And I did say to Clifford Solomon, I said, Clifford, I have to admit to you, my sight reading isn't that great. 
he goes, oh, well, it's, it's just this. Do, 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 do that twice. It's like, done. Right. It's the only written out guitar solo in the whole show. And then we, we went through some charts. And then he said, well, Mr. Charles, it's very important to Mr. Charles that, that he's a guitar player and knows how to play the blues. So we're just going to have the band, you know, just jam on a couple of courses. And if you could just jam on some blues for us. And well, that for me was a no brainer. Right. You know? Exactly. So anyway, I got the gig and long story short, thank you for listening to the whole story. Oh, that's but, great. Well, there's something to be said about believing in yourself and you do what you need to do to get the gig. If you are courageous enough or crazy enough or, you know, whatever. You get the gig with Ray Charles. I mean, one of the questions I think that goes through people's heads, I know it goes through my head. At that point, it's like, do you have an amp in a road case ready to rock? Do you need to get one? Do they have gear? Do you rent gear? What happens at that point? Do you have to get, you know, special clothes? What happens? <laughs> well, the clothes thing was pretty funny. They have um, suits for the band. The guy who was in the band before me was about... 300 pounds ah. so they they bring in this uh suit for me to try on and he hands me the pants and i look at him and i go check this out and i put both legs in one leg <laughs> I to refit <laughs> um as far as gear goes because this was my actual second tour i okay. did have uh a road case and I did, I was asked to bring my own amp. And, um, I think at the time I was an ovation in Dorsey and they had a, a, a run of amplifiers called KMD and I had them supply an amp, which sounded fine, uh, for the tour. Um, and, and I bought a road case for that amp. Um, on the first tour with Ricky, I was actually playing through a jazz chorus, which is not the preferred sound, but there was a lot of clean stuff. Oh yeah. Well, they sound glorious yeah. for that. Yeah, they do sound glorious for that. And I, you know, use pedals and delays and blah, blah, blah. Sure. Um, and a volume pedal, which was huge, you know, volume pedal and delay is, you know, you got to love it right. unless you like you, and then you do the fingers thing. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and, and then um, it was interesting because with Ray Charles's band, this is old school stuff. And no one will ever know what uh, musicians of color had to go through, especially in the 50s and 60s, where there were separate entrances, and, sure. you know, all the stuff, that the segregation stuff, which we can't even imagine. So um, I was told a very low salary and out of my low salary, I had to pay for hotel rooms. Oh. Hotel rooms were not provided. So most of the members of the band did share hotel rooms with each other and they did get a band rate. So it was, you know, cheap, uh, you know, like 25 bucks a night, uh, shared room, but it did uh, create challenges when meeting young people of the opposite sex. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of interesting. But anyway, you know, we were kids and uh, you do what you got to do, you know. Hey, buddy, here's 20 bucks. Go out to a bar for an hour. Or two right. Or whatever, you know. Go to McDonald's. Yeah, something. <laughs> Treat yourself to a delicious meal. And then That's I'll it. <laughs> but it was an amazing time for me. 
not only uh, was I on stage with one of the greatest musicians of all time, we were touring in Europe and Japan. We played the big jazz festivals, uh, North Sea Jazz Festival, Montreux. I mean, you know, it was an amazing time. The thing that was probably the most profound for me was I learned early on I could I could make Ray Charles screech in delight with the right place guitar note. <laughs> and when I, I so you know when it first happened, I just felt like I had this, you know, the saber, you know, right. this this power. Because if you know, and and every night I was out to get him. So I'd like, I learned early on, it's not how many notes you play; it's the right. simple little. B.B. King, Albert King kind of thing. And if I placed it just right, he'd go, oh, ow, right. oh. He'd turn around, he'd, you nasty boy. Ah. <laughs> oh, my God. What an epiphany for a young Jewish guitar player to make the master screech in delight. In delight. Know? We interrupt this gristle-infested conversation to give a shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Cox signature Gristle tone pickups. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars in Louisville, Colorado. Dig it all. So it was um, out with the much, or was there was there a, a kind of a, a wall in between you, the band, and because no. some people are like that. But was he was he nope. pretty? We were. I was right behind him. Now the interesting thing is. They would not allow microphones on stage other than Ray Charles's mic and the mics in front for the Ray Letts. So we were playing when we were playing in a 20,000 seat place or whatever. You know, we played in some Roman coliseums and stuff. Basically, the Ray Charles Orchestra was a big band and it was designed to play in the shells, you know, the, the big band acoustic shells. Now, certain theaters might have had some ambient mics maybe on the ceilings that maybe front of house guys kind of drizzled in a little bit. But basically, I realized, well, if people are 100 rows back, how are they going to hear my guitar amp if I don't turn it up a little bit? Right. And then every once in a while, I'd be playing and he'd turn around. And I didn't know what it was until he would say, turn down that goddamn guitar. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember, I'm went... oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. You remember what? I, I, I One year at Summerfest here in Milwaukee, it was a big music festival and they have all these permanent stages. But the yep. problem is over the years, they kept on adding more stages. And right. so there would always be this bleed from one right. stage to the next. And the last time Ray Charles played there, Oh, uh, I had just got done playing my set and I was in the vehicle being shuttled back to the parking lot. And all of a sudden it came over the mic or the, the intercom between all the people that work in there. It's like shut down all the other stages around Ray or else. Cause Ray's not going to play cause he can hear the bleed from the other stages. So oh, they yeah. did all the other yeah. stages had to, had to stop so that Ray could do his thing. And that probably, I mean, they probably couldn't hear anything on stage. Oh man, we, we were playing outdoors in in San Diego and there was some, I don't know, a seagull or something in one of the trees. And he, he kept on like saying, oh, somebody got to do something about that. But, you know, because he kept on, 
<laughs> like he wanted security to climb up the tree and get rid of it. You know, is one of those things. His ears obviously are very, very well advanced. And uh, yeah, um, you know, at the end of the very first tour, Ray came up to me and said, listen, I'm, I'm working on, a, a, uh, on some recording in, in L.A. at my studio, and I'd like you to come out. Now, <clears throat> I heard kind of, I got the skinny from the bass player who, you know, I spent a lot of time with at the time. He said, you know, we were in the studio with Ray Charles like all day long, a, a week or two ago. And basically, he paid the band members $40 a track. And if you're working on the same song all day long, you got 40 bucks. Oh, so, so when Ray, yeah. So when Ray asked me about this, about recording, I said, well, Mr. Charles, I'd be honored to come out. I just want you to know I make double scale. And Ray goes, double scale? Honey, I don't pay God double scale. <laughs> <laughs> but you come out and I'll take care of you. You know, and what am I going to do? Sing no. Right. Oh, the Jewish guitar player plays on the Christmas record, The Spirit <laughs> of Christmas. <laughs> and when that came out, I felt like, oh, my God, you know, this is this will be here forever. Right. You know, hey, Charles, I mean, and yearly. <laughs> right. So he, you know, we worked out something and, you know, he asked me what I felt was fair, uh, what I wanted. And I actually asked for twice as much as what I wanted because I figured he would go down, yeah. And he actually paid me what I asked, which was double from what I, yeah. So anyway, that's actually another lesson in regards to musicians. You're only worth as much as you're willing to ask. And if, and there is something to be said about valuing yourself, not undervaluing yourself. And it never hurts to ask for a little bit more than you want because worst case scenario, if somebody wants to work with you, then they'll adjust the budget. And I often, you know, will when people ask me about my fees, I'll say, well, look, I really prefer to be able to work with people's budgets, but this is what I like to get. Sure. And so that way you represent yourself as a professional who uh, respects himself or herself, and you put your fee out there and then if someone says, great, then you got your fee. And if someone says, eh, you know, and then you can kind of go, well, look, you know, what could we, how can we meet? Sure. So exactly. just a little, a little tip. Oh, I like that. it. Right. You'll be interested to hear this. I've, I've told this story before in one of these interviews, but the, my wife and I just, for whatever reason, we have this old house, it's 1908, and some of the windows are kind of old, and we thought, well, let's get a, let's get a quote on windows. And yeah. what the, and when the guy told us the quote, we, we almost, you know, we almost fainted. And he goes, here's the deal with windows. Whatever you think it's going to be, double it and add five grand. I was like, I think I've just got my new bargaining position. (laughs) Whatever you think it's going to be, double it and add five grand and I'm your man. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that'll work out, but yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. But uh, it does. If you do windows, that's a thing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, again, you know, um, Guys like you and I have, it's, you know, we've been doing this a while. And uh, musicians are, artists in general, are often underpaid. Sure. Uh, and, and it's important to kind of understand what your value is and right. what you feel is appropriate. And you can always check into what other people are making who are in a similar position and blah, blah, blah. 
right. these are little helpful tips to my musicians and friends who everyone should be you know, taken care of because we offer something very important out to the world. Indeed. Yeah, it's, a, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting rope to walk. You know, yes. there's always the, uh, do you take the big bang up front and get them to pay a lot? Then they'll be like, yeah, but I'm not going to use that guy anymore because he's too expensive versus something that's fair. Yes. And then it will might last exponentially longer. And then, of course, somebody might say, take the more now and who cares about, you know what I mean? It's yeah. the things you have to weigh, you know what I mean? It's, you know, as you said. Well, and that's what's nice about saying, look, I have my asking price, but... I prefer to be able to work with people's budgets. So if you kind of set that up front a little bit, then people know that you're malleable. If they take advantage of that, well, that's another possibility. Right. You know? <laughs> exactly. But anyway, how let's are you? Just little, you let's talk good? just a little bit about, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated about the gear thing. And, and you've... Okay. And we've had talks about stuff like, you know, when you were getting ready to go out with Crosby, I remember you said, I think I'm about using this amp, but I'm thinking about using this pedal. And yeah. so, so talk about that over the years. I mean, because I think it's important also for people to realize is that, yeah, under, in a perfect world, you'd like to use X, Y, and Z, but mm -hmm. that might be way too loud for, <laughs> for a situation. And then there's also the situation of, I have relationships with certain manufacturers who are going to provide a certain level of support. So when mm -hmm. I'm going over to Europe and I can't, we can't bring our stuff over, they're going to sure. provide stuff for me. So talk about that yep. walk. You know what I mean? You got it. So uh, for many years, my whole makeup was I have a pedal board that can do all of the things that I kind of need it to do. Um, and then I could kind of work with any decent amplifier that gets a nice clean sound so that way i can just you know have that intimacy of a sparkly clean sound for many many years i was using two boogies uh in like in stereo with a tc uh chorus pedal when i used to enjoy this chorus sound sure. more than yeah. now that was the one to get yeah i've i've gotten to a point now where i where i actually like just hearing the sound of the clean guitar un yeah. you know, messed with, you know, cause that's tone, you yeah. know? Um, but, but anyway, so, so I had this pedal board that had compressor, it had delay, it had a volume pedal, it had distortions, you know, pretty much could. And, and I use that as a kind of a go-to, whether it's a recording session or a tour or whatever, as time has gone on, uh, when I got away from the boogies, which by the way, as many people would know, have a clean sound and a dirty sound and you would kind of, have to tweak the amplifier so uh, the clean sound was spongy enough for me. Right. You know, I would often put up the initial input just so it wasn't too squeaky, no character sound versus right. you're driving the tubes a little bit. And then once that was set, I'd go to the overdrive set uh, section and get it to where I got a nice overdrive sound that wasn't too metallic sounding, where it sure. wasn't too fuzzy where you could hear the tone and the singing quality of guitar. Um, so that has been my mantra, if you will. You know, I'm not, uh, when I use an over overdrive sound, I, I love it to be warm and, and, and uh, earthy, uh, you know, Carlton-y, Robin Forty, uh, you know, uh, just where you're really hearing the note and it's singing versus, you know, Ingve or whatever. Right. 
know? right. uh, so different amplifiers I have found after I got away from working with boogies for years and I, I still love them, but I found that every amp brings out a total different character in your playing. Sure. And, and I love that. I love the fact that I can plug into, I, I bought a mashless and used that for a while. And, uh, I've been, uh, well, I'm very fortunate that, uh, Graham Nash gave me a overdrive special double. Nice. Which is an unbelievable and, and I did take it out on a Crosby, Stills and Nash tour where we were, we were playing outdoors and it started to rain and the covering of the roof, uh, which, which was tarped and this big thing of water went like two feet away from my dumble. And I realized I can't take this amplifier out on tour anymore. Right. You know, it's just irreplaceable or as Crosby calls it, it's made out of unobtainium. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, um, that, you know, kind of is, is my, is a studio amp that I use and I have a lot of different amps, you know, and I love two rocks because they kind of emulate that sound. Sure. There's a number of, amplifier makers, the Bluto tone. And, you know, there's a lot of fantastic uh, boutique amplifiers. And then Kach makes, makes a fantastic, go figure, a fantastic amplifier. Yeah. And, I, you know, I heard the amp that you designed, uh, that you helped them design at the right. amp and I'm blown away. And I am looking forward to actually acquiring a head for the next Crosby tour. Yes. Out. So, you know, they, they were kind of, Chris uh, from, uh, was... Uh, Chris Fingerhoods. Yeah, what a sweetie. And he, he brought one, you know, and I played it one night when we were in driving distance from where he was. I can't even remember because the dates, you know, I go from one place to the other. It's like, where am I now? Right. But, but that amp sounded great. And I think there might be some videos of that gig online somewhere. Um, so anyway, um, you know, I'm... A little bit of an amplifier snob, but I'm gregarious too. And, and, you know, the thing that's, like I mentioned, that's so fun about trying out different amplifiers, they bring out this different side of your creativity that, um, you know, it is, it's very exciting to get a chance to try different things and then see how it reacts with your rig, with your guitar. Right. So, um, you know, I, I enjoy now mixing it up, you know, trying different things. And, and the only way really to get a chance to see what it's going to do is to just get out there and use it. Indeed. I mean, you could sit in your room and that'll be one way to do it. But the only, the real litmus test is to get it out on the gig. And every gig, you know, has its own sonic requirements too. Absolutely. You know, so you may, you know, if you have an old school kind of gig, then maybe your Fender, you know, deluxe or your whatever might be something that feels really good. Um, but it is fun to have various instruments, various amplifiers. And now that I'm a married guy, it's the one place I could still be promiscuous. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can dig that. Right. No, I was just thinking, I, I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but you, you procured kind of an interesting guitar a while back. Yeah. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that, Rascal? You mean this guy? That one right there. Yeah. 
it's it's an interesting story with the mat, you know the oh yeah so, perfect so my friend i i've i've met a cast of characters working with crosby stills and nash um you know there's a lot of history there and a lot of stories that have been told and a lot of untold stories i'm sure right. i'm sure um so as i understand it this man who's a friend of mine now i you know met him through csn his name is tom hagan and Tom uh, worked with CSNY during the heyday when they were playing. I think these were some of the first huge um, stadium gigs sure. that ever happened. And so uh, Tom was an assistant with the band. Uh, he wasn't necessarily a, a, a roadie per se. He was someone who was friends and they had their entourage and there were people who would assist in whatever had to be done, picking up things or whatever, who knows what. Well, on this fateful day, it was Neil Young's, as Tom tells me the story, it was Neil Young's birthday. And in the middle of the show, uh, somebody said, Hey folks, it's Neil Young's birthday. And the whole you know crowd goes nuts. Well, it was also Tom Hagen's birthday. And they, after they announced Neil, someone in the band goes, hey, it's Tom Hagen's birthday too. And nobody knows who Tom Hagen is, so maybe a few claps or whatever. Neil gets off stage and hands Tom a guitar case. And it was that guitar. It was uh, basically, from my understanding, one of Neil's old black uh, spares. Right, sure. I, I don't really know. I'm trying to find you know, people who were involved who might know more. Uh, there was a guitar roadie named Guillermo who uh, I have, haven't been able to find. Um, anyway, I wanted to try to identify the instrument. And I have a very dear friend who's a dentist and a fantastic guitar player named Tony Dioguardi. And Tony said, well, the... Black, Neil's original old blackie, as I found out, was a gold top that was painted black that Jimmy Messina owned in Buffalo Springfield. And in those Buffalo Springfield days, Jimmy Messina traded Neil old black for one of Neil's Gretches. Okay. And actually, I, I, I should probably talk to Jimmy about this. But, but anyway, so... The original old black that Neil still plays was painted over, and, and I can ask Jimmy if he knows, you know, why or when this gold top was painted over. But the guitar that I have was is black, and there's no serial number visible. So my friend, the dentist Tony, said, "Well, why don't you come in and we'll X-ray ah. the headstock." <laughs> And I have pictures of Tony and his whole, you know, regular regalia. Dentist regalia. And we have the guitar, you know, in the chair. And he's like, you know, positioning the thing. Well, he was able to do that for another friend who had a guitar that was painted over. And sure enough, there was the uh, serial number underneath. This one had no serial number to be oh. found. But there are, you know, guys who can identify guitars by you know sure. numerous things the pots the neck the tuners you know the head truss rod blah 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 we right. think it's a mid-70s 
black Les Paul. And, uh, and when I got the guitar, of course, just being so excited to have this thing, I was playing it and Neil has his setup with a P90 in the neck and a Firebird, a very high Firebird pickup in the, in the bridge. And when I played the guitar, it felt, the pickups felt very mismatched to me. And being a player, not a collector, I decided to take the, the neck pickup and put it in the case where I always have it in case I right. need to. And I put a Seymour Duncan filter tron okay, yeah. in the neck position. And actually, it sounds really good, the combination of the two. And my friend who uh, looked at the output of this Firebird pickup said, it's the hottest Firebird pickup. Firebird pickup. Ever because yeah, I mean, right? yeah. <laughs> usually so, uh, firebird neck pickup or bridge pickups are kind of wimpy right in comparison to you know I, I really don't know but he said this thing was just so loud you know the output so look man i i i feel very very fortunate and i used to use the word lucky but i think luck can be blind and just ha happenstance and fortune is something that one manifests through their tenacity through their commitment through their i'm gonna take on this commitment of being a guitar player and meeting people and getting my, you know, thing out there and through, you know, all these different uh, opportunities, you know, between Graham Nash giving me this amazing Dumble and, and getting this guitar and Crosby's giving me a couple beautiful guitars. And I, I'm, I'm a very fortunate guy that I've been around generous people. Um, Jackson Brown gave me an AC 30, you know, I, I, been acquiring some really beautiful things along the road and uh i use them in my studio and you know it's just part of my stuff i can dig it awesome stuff yeah well awesome well jeff this has been so much fun i'm so glad you took some time out for us and shot the breeze with us and told us these fantastic stories i'm sure we could we could talk for hours on end i know i know well i i certainly can as you can see that's <laughs> fantastic no it's that's why we got you because we knew there would be stories forthcoming yeah well Greg, so what's next for you i mean obviously with this doggone pandemic we don't know what the heck's going on but so you're, yeah. you're going to do some more uh live streams i would imagine how could we find those if people are watching this yeah. would would like to well tune in? well pvar.com p-e-v-a-r.com is is a great place uh you know to find information of things that are going on and also videos and you know kind of cool information also records that i've produced and that i've put out i have a beautiful record that i did with my wife inger, inger. and uh that's so fantastic. that's that's a beautiful record that came came out recently and i'm working on another jeff pvar record um, and yeah, so, you know, we, we shall can continue, but while we're here, Greg, I just want to tell you what a fan I am of, of your music and how you handle yourself as a, uh, uh as a guitar player who, uh, has so much character and has such a grasp on not only musicality, but presenting, uh, yourself in such a gregarious celebratory way and oh, uh, thank you yeah man it's it's an honor to get a chance to know you and play music with you and i look forward to the next opportunity and it's always an honor to you know travel in the circles that you're traveling man oh likewise my friend it's always a yeah. pleasure hanging with you and i'd look forward to seeing you again in person and doing yeah. some playing once this pestilence has somewhat subsided i agree 
wholeheartedly. That was a mouthful. That was a mouthful. What's the pestilence that somewhat subsided? And make sure you send my regards to your wonderful family. Oh, I will for sure do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, my friend, thanks so much. Please say hello to Inger for me. It's always a pleasure seeing you guys. And uh, hopefully we'll see you soon. In the meantime, take care. And folks, check out Jeff Pebar. Check out his great records. And look online. There's some awesome footage of him wielding his axe with great aplomb. <laughs> you got it. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a uh, thank you, Jeff. Awesome. I knew it would be. Thank you. All right. Let's talk soon. Take it easy. Okay.